Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Frey, and I'm the co-director of the, uh, the Centre for Media Transition at UTS in Sydney. And my producer today is the wonderful Anthony Dockrell. And coming up, uh, last week the government suffered a rare defeat in the House of Reps with the passing of the Medivac Bill. The government's embarrassment quickly turned to outrage and claims of Australia now is now having open borders all because of Bill Shorten and the Labour Party. How this matter played out in the media is what interests here, us here today. Uh, did we see true diversity in the coverage uh, of the Medivac bill, or did we see, as Chris Mitchell, among others, have said in a column in The Australian, uh, that our, our media is deeply partisan, deeply divided? Facebook. And we love talking about Facebook on the show. Facebook may be the place where you find and talk to your friends, but this platform this week is increasingly friendless itself. A report table in the UK Parliament called them digital gangsters. And at the same time, back in Australia, Facebook has hit out at the ACCC's plan or desire to have an independent body to oversee its algorithm. So what to do about Facebook? What do we need as journalists, given so many of our readers and listeners find our copy there? And finally, some good news. More people are reading Australian news, with some 17.4 million people reading papers or getting their news digitally uh, enhanced via their mobile phone mainly, with some 94% of the Australian population engaging. Surely uh, the news media should be in rude health and we should all be making tons of money. To dissect that, uh, those issues and many others, I suspect, we have this fantastic panel today. We have Emily Watkins, who's the media reporter from Crikey. Hello, Emily. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. And I should say that Emily's also worked for Media Watch. So, yes. And, and the NT News. Yes. Were yeah, you there when the they ones. put a cracker up their um, clacker? No, that was sadly after my time. Oh, dear. What golden age. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's yeah, true. It's true. <laughs> um, to Emily's left in the studio, we have Nick O'Malley, who is a senior reporter, writer, extraordinaire for the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age... In in nine entertainment, <laughs> nine, he's an. Ent- I'm still getting used to that. Period. Yeah, so no, so am I. <laughs> and the former U.S. correspondent. I bet you wish you were there sometimes. Oh, uh, look, that story just gets crazier and crazier. I thought it was an exciting time being there, but it just yeah. it never stops. It just keeps giving, doesn't mm. it? And on the line from Melbourne, we have uh, Andrew Rule who is an associate editor. And I always want, what is an associate editor? Anyway, we'll get to that. And the associate editor of the Herald Sun, um, a specialist in crime and sport and various other things, and the author, if you, in case you didn't know, of the authorised biography of that amazing horse, Winks. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hello there, Peter. What and do, hello to the panel. What does an associate editor do? Associate? Uh, associate with all sorts of people. Uh, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Mm, okay, fair enough. Well, next time in Melbourne, you can do that. Right. Okay. So, let's get to it. Last week, we saw the nation's political temperature ratchet up to boiling point, and the media itself experienced something of a climate change. Well, according to some people, it did. With the passing of the Medivac bill, the early coverage centred on this act of compassion and the fact that the government had lost a vote in the House of Reps for the first time since uh, 1941. But then, So, after the historic bit, it all became a little bit histronic. In some media outlets, the coverage quickly moved from the historic defeat to claims that our borders were being broken down and Australia would again be deluged by boats and refugees. 
And riding in the Australian, Chris Mitchell, who's the Australian's former long, long-suffering, long-standing editor-in-chief, he made the case that there is a clear partisan divide in how this issue was covered. Uh, for him, the, the coverage and the subsequent debate in the media highlighted that some in the left, in the left of the media he's talking about, still have not come to terms with the words that average Australians have about border control. And that, in fact, you know, the media is in its own bubble, with, of course, some exceptions. Uh, so tonight we turn our attention to how the media coverage is, covered this matter. It seems fair to say the coverage did at times feel quite partisan, but is Mitchell right that the left are still preaching and lecturing on refugees, or is the right and the media just as guilty as screaming and shouting? Are we getting more and more partisan? Let's start with you, Nick. Are we getting more and more partisan in the media? Uh, I think the world is getting more and more partisan, and I think that a lot of audiences read what they will see, what they want to see in media reports. Um, I know a lot of people have criticised Fairfax, well, sorry, <laughs> nine <laughs> newspapers, <laughs> the Age and the Herald, of being far too left and far too right on these issues. Mm. And look, I read, I read criticism about this from Chris Mitchell and the Oz with a little bit of a jaundiced eye because <laughs> I detect significant partisanship in that newspaper, but. There were some points that needed to be made in this coverage. Mm. And and when they were made, the government pointed particularly at the ABC and said that's partisan when they were just highlighting a few key points, such like, as... Like the defeat. Well, the defeat, yeah. that, that's the political story. But even if you look at the policy itself, the government is casting this as, as the Labor Party whittling away on border security. It is worth the media reporting and explaining to readers that one element of, of what is largely a three-pong policy has been changed slightly and that the other things that have kept people from landing on boats on Australian shores are in place. In fact, they're still turning back boats. They always have been. Mm. That's so worth reporting, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Andrew, I should say for the benefit of the listeners, you are in the same stable, no pun yeah. intended, of, as, uh, as, as the Australian. Uh, what do you think? Do you think Well, we're think a broad church column? here at Newspaper. You are a broad church, I know that. Broad church, and I personally don't know Chris Mitchell, and I suspect that after more than 20 years working for Fairfax, I probably wouldn't be among his favourites, um, in, in, even if we did know each other. But... Um, so I owe him nothing in particular okay. and uh, often sometimes disagree with him, but I, I tend to agree with him on, you know, six out of ten points here because I do see a divide in the coverage. I think it's, it's starting to remind me of society when I was a child where, you know, Catholics and Protestants sort of pointed at each other across the road. Uh, and didn't share the same views or the same football teams and all the rest of it. I see a bit of that now um, in our society. We're no longer divided by, um, you know, religious um, mm -hmm. divisions, but by other belief systems. And one of the belief systems that, that divide people are these sort of left-right, green, non-green, you know, conservative versus small-l liberal divisions. And I think he does make a point that people sort of pick sides and stick to them, um, both inside the media and outside it. And we, we see that more and more all the time. So do you think, just, just sticking with that, I mean, do you think that journalists, I mean, Chris Mitchell's analysis, his critique is that journalists in a way, especially he would say on the, if you like, the left, the ABC and the, the Herald and the Age and what have you, are sort of letting down the profession of journalism by essentially picking sides and being partisan. I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think that journalists are kind of letting down the side, as it were? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to 
uh, shouted hysterically, but I think there is there is uh, room to argue that uh, with with some you know you'd have to be careful about who you um, threw in that basket, who you threw under the bus. But I think there's a degree of it, and I think most of us are conscious um, of the criticism of our peers and. I don't just mean our peers in in our business, but you know, socially, you know, that some groups believe certain things as as a given, and other groups don't. It's a it's an interesting time in our history. Mm, mm. Emily, what do you think? Do you think that uh, I mean, kind of Chris Mitchell's view, and we'll get to another view in a second, but Chris Mitchell's view is that the media is letting it letting itself down, really. Yeah. Look, I'm not sure. I um entirely agree. I think um, Andrew's right. You need to be careful in um, in how you pick on people and the views they take. I mean, I think one of the wonderful things about our media is that we do have a diversity of um, opinions and uh, perspectives and audiences that, um, that uh, uh, newspapers and other outlets are publishing for. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm not sure that I've seen anything in particular that I think has let journalism down in my reading around this. Mm. Um, obviously there is a risk if you're, um, maybe moving too, particularly at the ABC, probably if you're moving too far into advocacy, um, or activism, but I'm not sure that I've seen anything as yet that really falls into that. You know what I do think is clear? Mm. That in a printed newspaper, we very clearly define and mark what is comment, what is analysis Mm -hmm. and what is news. We do so online, but we do it in a way that journalists, I think, understand better than audiences. Mm. Mm. A journalist, we we will put a comment piece, if it's doing well, at the top. Yes among our news stories, and yes. sure, when you click on it, it's marked comment. That probably yes. means more to me and to an editor than it does to a reader. And so I think readers are getting more comment and more opinion mixed with their news. I, uh, what do you think of that, Andrew? I think that's a very fair point. Yep, that is. Uh, the, the loss of uh, the old hard copy, well-curated newspaper model mm. means that things are, exactly as Nick says, are more confused, confused and confusing for readers. Because it's it's messier, it is less curated. So it's obvious we don't have the visual cues that we that we actually rely on in life. We on rely other hand, on visual cues for everything. I'd argue but, that in in the yeah. Oz, it's not that in the Australian, in the masthead from which Mitchell's preaching, it's pretty. Yep. Things are pretty simple and clear. Yep. Well, there are days when uh, the Oz seems to have its uh, you know of its first five. I mean, I, I read the Oz on the mobile phone, and of often of its first five or six. Two or three of them will be basically columns. Be yeah, Janet Albertson mm. and Jack the Insider, and they'll be the same all. column. Well, yeah, that's right. So, but is I mean, in a way, I mean, we're talking, I guess, in part about the breakdown of the business model, right? So that we need that we how do we make money now? Where we get attention? Is that part of it? You think, Amy? Yeah, absolutely. So I we think... get attention by putting columns instead of facts. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of currency as well in having a very strong, hard view um, and a headline, an attention-grabbing headline that will get people to click and maybe agree with the headline rather than (laughs) reading the whole thing and and reading into any nuance that might be there, if there is any, which there isn't always. Mm. Mm. So is that a bad thing? Um, I don't think it's great for public discourse. No, no. Well, that's right. I mean, I think the Medigate... So what was interesting, I think, about the Medivac experience last week is that 
uh, the the sort of, if you like, the two sides of this argument became very apparent straight away. You know, there was, okay, there was the vote. And then next week, you know, for about two or three days afterwards, it was the government saying, well, that's it. You know, the borders are open again. And and you are the, the media either taking that view as read or not. Well, it was a very extraordinary performance from the Prime Minister to come out with that very emotional uh, press conference where he announced that, for reasons that I still don't fully understand, that Christmas Island was reopening. I mean, gone was the bloke in the, in the caps with the two thumbs up and the big grin, and then you've got sort of thundering ScoMo back on the border threatening that he'll take on the people smugglers from the foreshore. That was about media. That was about playing the media. He wanted to project a certain image, uh, and he probably achieved it. Now, would you think we're heading... Is this a tamper moment, Andrew? Or uh, is that what the government was after? Uh, yeah, I think... I suspect that probably are after it. If it's that cold-blooded a play, I imagine that the... You know, the spinners are saying, can we wind it back and do that trick again? Um, that doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong. It just means that we know it's being spun to get a, a particular, uh, an effect, to get the maximum bang for their buck. I mean, that's always an interesting question for journalists, isn't it? You know, the Prime Minister stands up and says something. I mean, we see this all the time, say, for instance, with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, outrageous statements are made by a person in power um, and in a kind of, if you like, the old model, the, the, the response to the journalist was, get out your notebook, take down that quote, and if it's a good quote, put it as the lead. But, you know, are we reaching this point where, as Catherine Murphy, for instance, suggests, the government, she wrote a very strong column and, and went out on Twitter saying that the, essentially the government was lying about the border, borders being open, they were sort of seeking this tamper moment, and that journalists had to call them out. In other words, say they were lying. Where do we draw the line on that? It's tricky, right? Emily? Yeah, look, I mean, it's really difficult and it's something journalists, like you mentioned in the US in particular, are really grappling with with Donald Trump. Um, I think uh, Media Watch this week actually pointed out Sky News um, calling out uh, Michael McCormack on some of the things that he was saying about Labor, Labor's... Um, that, that was a really telling moment. Yeah. That was mm. great to watch. Mm. But it was also, I thought... In that person's job, in his role as an anchor, to call someone out immediately mm. is something that journalists or the TV anchors are learning to do. It's a new skill they've picked up, and I think it's a good one. I think it's good for readers. When it's as clear-cut as that, someone was telling a falsehood, he was able to interrupt them and say, that's not true. Well, and in 24-hour and on online news, 24 hour news and online news, that's a very difficult skill to have, to always have all the knowledge that you need when mm, you're, mm. you know, um, especially Sky News. I mean, they have people on all the time. For all those anchors to be across all the issues and all the possible falsehoods, mm. that requires a lot of skill, which, I mean, you could argue they should definitely have, but I think that's um, it's very so do you reckon, Yeah, that's a good point, Emily, and, and Nick, and I'll bring you in too, Andrew. I mean, are we – that was sort of live fact-checking, really, by Dan yeah. Spears, mm. right? I mean, is that yeah. is that what we want, Andrew? Is that what we want? Is that what journalists should be doing? Kind of almost hey, calling this out as a lie. I mean, we're seeing it very much so in America. Yeah. The New York Times and the Wash Post are basically calling Trump, calling Trump lies <laughs> out as lies, rather than reporting them and then having a column saying, "Oh, they're full of crap." They're actually calling yeah. them lies inside of news stories. So, is that where is that the next line? Is that where we're heading? Andrew? I think so. It's a high stakes game, though, isn't it? It's it's um, it's tricky for the practitioners because uh, you're very very visible if you get it wrong. Mm. Uh, it's, it just shows that everything is rotating faster than it used to. Um, and it's a, a, 
a more dangerous game than it than it was because there's no there's no downtime to sort of soak up the extra knowledge, do the research, do the thinking, uh, you know, temper your views, cool down a bit. It, all those things mm. go out the window. But, but yeah. in that case, and it, <laughs> I'll probably stuff this up and get it wrong now. <laughs> a week later, <laughs> let's do it live. <laughs> I think what had happened was that who, who was the politician? It was um, McCormick. It was McCormick. Yeah. He had said that that rapists and killers under under the changes could come to Australia. Mm. And Gilbert responded, "No, the minister." Uh, un- under this legislation, the minister can prevent that from happening if they've been convicted for a crime for more than a, the, mm. the, the, a year, more than a year yeah, inside. Yeah. That's pretty clear cut. Mm. And if someone, mm. if you've invited a guest on and he mm. tells you something which he knows is wrong and you know he knows is wrong because he's the minister, mm. then I do think that it's incumbent on a ho- upon a host to say it. Okay, so in your news stories, news stories, not commentary, in your news stories, you'd be okay having a paragraph that sort of said, you know, this is what McCormick said, and the next paragraph would say, actually, that's factually wrong. You'd yes. Be, you would be good with you that? You could easily say, in fact, the the legislation says this. What mm-hmm. you can't do, and what has been a huge debate for the New York Times and the Washington Post, is when you call something a lie, because that means that you have to be able to see inside the soul of that person <laughs> and say whether or not they knew it to be wrong. And that is that has been a huge debate so in the United States about Trump. Yeah, that's a really so Kieran Gilbert said he was wrong. He didn't say he was a liar, no, and, and that true. is fair enough. Okay. All right. So, Emily, you, where do you stand on that? On calling it out in a news story? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, okay. I definitely don't think he but should be But you draw reported. the line at saying it was a lie. Well, I mean, like Nick said, that's where it starts to get a bit complicated because um, especially with – uh, defamation laws in this country. Mm. I mean, you can't really know what someone is thinking. But you can't call rich people liars. Rich people who know lots of lawyers. Lawyers, yeah. I mean, just just on this, just finally on this point. Uh, you know, back to what Murphy was writing. So she kind of basically said um, uh, the government wasn't telling the truth. And that the journos weren't doing enough. And I quote: When it comes to politicians banging drums about border protection in the shadow of elections. Journalists need to turn up to work and voters need to be high alert. Um, that was pretty stern stuff from Catherine. Do you think she's right? Andrew, are journos not turning up to work on this sort of stuff? Oh, no, I think they are. I mean, <laughs> most of them are only human. Uh, and I think they're turning up to work. And I think, to go back to the previous one, if Polly's are telling porkies, yeah. Uh, doesn't it become the lead of the story? Doesn't that become the story? Well, I, well it does, that's very rare that that is the case, isn't it? I mean, I, I don't think I can recall, maybe someone can correct me on the panel, that uh, the lead of the story was basically the government is telling porkies about X, Y, Z as a lead of a story. No, I'm mean, not saying it wouldn't be in the body. I can't think of that. I know. No, Perhaps if someone would like well, okay. But if it stand, yeah. jumps out enough, doesn't yeah. that become yeah. the, the most salient point of the story? Well, yeah, and I think that's where we, the New York Times is, right? So I think, you know, with Trump, he repeats falsehoods yeah. all the time, the same falsehoods. So We're inoculated now. Yeah, that's no right. No one cares. No yeah. one cares. I mean, yeah. that would be uh, – that, Emily, that would be a terrible moment, wouldn't it, for Australian news media if we got to the point where – We've been trumped. We've been trumped, yeah. yes. Yeah. It, yeah, it would. It would. Yeah. Do you see a danger in that in this forthcoming election? I mean, we've seen – last week, did we see an early kind of – uh, a harbinger of things to come? What the government's doing n- now, this week, they did in 2001. I think we're looking back rather than forward. Mm. And I think that for some, well, for many reasons, which is probably in another conversation, Australian institutions are weathering the modern times slightly better than 
those of the United States. Mm. Oh, well, that would be a great conversation. We I'm haven't sure. yet been trumped. We haven't yet been trumped? I uh, think. Right. Have we been trumped, Andrew? No, I think Nick's right. And I think mainly because really our people in public life are not Donald Trump. Um, yeah. And that's the, that's the difference. That's the difference. And probably we're not yet at the stage where we would elect such a person, although that's not beyond belief. Well, Clive, Clive Palmer wants to make Australia yeah. great. Yes, he does. I'm missing out the again. So is he, we'll be trumped when Clive Palmer manages to take over the, the well, parliamentary true. Liberal Party and, and become Prime Minister. But let's turn our attention uh, briefly to Facebook, as we can film program after program talking about social media and Facebook. And you know, around the world, we're seeing uh, a lot of legislators, lawmakers, regulators um, kind of getting stuck right into Facebook. The most recent examples, one was a report tabled in, in Westminster in Parliament that basically called the, and I quote, companies like Facebook should not be allowed to behave like, quote, digital gangsters in the online world, considering themselves to be ahead of and beyond the law. So that was a parliamentary committee uh, issuing those words, strong words indeed. Uh, and, and it's also noted, as that report noted, that uh, Facebook uh, failed to front up to that parliamentary committee three times and, and therefore was in contempt of parliament. And just to cut to the chase back home, we have the Australian Consumer Competition Commission looking, the ACCC looking at Facebook, suggesting that uh, maybe there needs to be an independent body to review its algorithms. Uh, and the ACCC sees this as a possible way to readdress the power imbalance between Facebook and news media. And that is, of course, no surprise that Facebook is pushing back on this. So what to do, what to do about Facebook? I mean, is Facebook, in terms of the way we do our business, journalists, the, the business of journalism, does Facebook need to be under greater scrutiny, Emily? An easy question. Oh, it's incredibly complicated. Um, I mean, I don't think we can deny Facebook's power in in the industry and the influence it's had on the news media. I don't think Facebook is the only problem mm-hmm. with, with the industry. Um, and I'm not convinced that an algorithm regulator will make much difference. Why, why is that? Because... Well, I mean, this is Facebook's spin, obviously, but they are adamant that most of the content that people see is not actually news, that they don't steal content. Um, I'm not sure that news media, news, the news business's problems are just from Facebook. I mean, mm. I think there are issues to do with the advertising dollars, perhaps more than mm-hmm. the news side of it, mm-hmm. um, which is also a problem with um, Google and mm-hmm. even Twitter taking some of that, that advertising money, mm-hmm. um, which I think is probably more of an issue for news providers. Than, than a statutory body to look at the algorithm. What do you, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, and then the whole fake news and fake accounts and meddling and things is a whole other issue. Yes, well, we might get to that, or we might do a separate whole show <laughs> on uh, on that on one of those favourite subjects. Nick, what do you think? I think Facebook needs massive oversight, far more than it's getting, and it needs it in every country. Further than that, it needs treaties. It needs international bodies to start looking at it. Um, but I agree, I don't know that an algorithm regulator is going to do the trick. I think it needs to be more. Um, Partly it's the business model. If one or two organisations, well, they have, one or two organisations have mopped up pretty well all the advertising money on earth. Yes. Now, 
that's a huge problem for every democracy. Of course, that needs to be challenged. I think it's also interesting that it's it's the UK that has been most the UK Parliament, the British Parliament, that's been most effective on this. Zuckerberg turns up to Congress, and a couple of ninety-five-year-old GOP <laughs> guys sort of drool at him and eat mashed food and then wander off, and they still don't know what the internet is. But he goes well. He, his the, staff goes to, to the British Parliament, and they get knocked around the room. Uh, what are you saying? The Poms are better at knocking social media jobs? I'm right? saying that the the British Parliament is taking this far more seriously and its elected mm. representatives and their staff are doing a far better job than most other parliaments of learning what this means. And that's the thing. It's so complicated. Their business model is so sophisticated and so beyond most of us yeah. that it needs that. Well, can I make two points, two contradictory points? One is... Good, good, good. Uh, yeah, can, <laughs> should Facebook... Just, not this isn't Facebook spin, but it's just a fair question, I think. Facebook and others have created an incredible business model. They actually serve advertisers in a pinpoint accuracy and deliver it to you, me, anyone who cares mm-hmm. about, you know, this relationship between the advertiser and the customer. So sometimes, you know, they would argue, well, we're just being pinged and picked on for creating this fantastic way of reaching advertisers. There used to be a time in ineffective capitalist democracies when one or two companies made such massive monopolies that they could control commerce, that government stepped in and said, no, you can't do that, mate, and broke them up. Yes. Well, so the Sydney Morning Herald used to make massive profits with an advertising model. No one, I'm sure the, no one really talked about breaking up the Sydney Morning Herald. No, but I don't think the Sydney Morning Herald was ever a monopoly. It was, might have been a well, monopoly on if you wanted to to die or sell a house in Sydney. You had, to talk, to, you had to talk to Fairfax. Well, and now you have to basically go on Facebook. What do you think, Andrew? Well, we've seen this parasitic thing grow, haven't we? It starts out as a leech and we sort of ignore it. (laughs) What do you you really think? It it, it becomes a vampire and then it becomes a wolf pack. And uh, along the way, we lose the strength to fight it off. I've I've always had this sort of naive hope, and this is probably um, the beginnings of Alzheimer's here, but I've had a naive hope that that these things could get so big and strong, that is Facebook, Google and so on, that maybe they can start up employing journalists and using them properly to write really Ooh, good stories. I think that the is a naive that, The hope. way that the early um, newspapers did in the 1890s, they mm, mm, uh, uh, Using yeah. their advertising, pound shillings and pence as yes. it was then, but why would Facebook just... Yes, no, well, it's an interesting thought. And, of course, an extension of that thought, of course, is this idea that Facebook and Google should be levied in some way, a kind of content levy, and that money should go back to support journalism, right? So it's not directly employ- employing journalists. It's actually a levy on these social media that giants. Would be one, yeah, that would be one way. But to somehow funnel it back so it strengthens the host... Yes. You know, all the, yeah, yeah the, the libertarian model that was supposed to make the internet different turns out to really be effective, an effective machine for monopolistic behavior by old fashioned big corporations, really. How but, much does Zuckerberg want? And should we just roll over and give it to him? Well, but it doesn't, isn't Rupert basically uh, by nature a monopolist? Yep. Isn't he, Andrew? Um, I think that's. <laughs> Well, some people would say that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure if you, you would. Know, I can't even spell it. I'm sure I've heard it said. Yes, okay. Um, just, just before we leave Facebook, I did want to just go back to the algorithmic uh, statutory body. The reason why the algorithm is obviously so important is that when Facebook changes its algorithm, if you've based your business model knowing what Facebook will do, and then suddenly they change the algorithm without telling you, 
then you can go out of business, which has happened to uh, in the US and also happened here in a sense where people were told to go and get video. So everyone started employing video journalists and suddenly the algorithm changed and it didn't reward video anymore. So it is part of the puzzle potentially, don't you think? If- uh, look, it could be, but I suppose there's a part of me that thinks you probably shouldn't build your whole business model around another business when you don't know what they're going to do and you have no input or say into what happens to that business. Mm. Um, But if that business is so powerful that you can't do business in this economy without depending on that business, then we have a problem. Look, it's simplistic, but I... Yeah, no, okay, fair enough. But look, again, back back to the old school, there used to be, um, well, there are still in this country, half a dozen, maybe 10 big advertisers and if a newspaper, and this isn't that long ago, lost the support of two or three of them, they could make serious damage. I remember I was deputy of the Sun Herald, and it was always said when uh, Bingley and Harvey Norman pulled out the Sun Herald, that would be the end of it. And they did pull out. It's still alive, though, so maybe that's not true. So I think this is, yeah, it's a big complex problem. Um, Facebook, so you're not, uh, so you say, Andrew, you say they're vampires. Nick, you describe them as what? A horrible monopolist. Yeah. Well, Does I, anyone like Facebook, Emily? Mm, oh no, I wouldn't say I Look, like. This, them. this is the nature, <laughs> though, of large companies. It's not. I'm, I'm not casting nasturtions at them, Peter. I'm saying this is what they do, and therefore we need regulators when they get out of hand mm. to come in and knock them apart. Okay. All right. Well, um, we will return to this subject because the HLC report uh, is the final report was due by the middle of the year, and I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about because there's a lot in the HLC report. And if anyone's listening and want a good read about journalism and support for journalists, I would strongly recommend the ACCC report. I know I never I never thought I'd say that, but I, I just said <laughs> it, so there you go. <clears throat> Finally, we've got some happy news. So the latest figures on news readership in this country make for some very interesting reading with newspapers or their digital uh, versions currently reaching 12.1 million people in the country uh, and, and even more impressive, 17.4 million for all news media. This looks like extremely healthy figures. That's a lot of people. 90 plus percent of the adult population are somehow reading newspapers or news media, often on the mobile phone, of course. So these figures come from Emma, not to be confused with Emily, who's uh, here. Uh, Emma stands for Enhanced Media Metrics Australia, and it's given a shot in the arm to all these metrics because they've started counting what happens on a mobile phone. <coughs> So, simple question, really. With all these people reading our stuff, why aren't we in rude health, Nick? Facebook takes all the money. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) People find news via Facebook and the ads appear on Facebook. Okay. All right. So we blame back to Facebook. I thought we were getting off Facebook for a second. Okay, Emily, what do you make of this? I mean, you're the media reporter for Crikey. It's been a terrific survey, by the way, for the Sydney Morning Herald. It came in number one. Uh, Your fair uh, newspaper, Andrew, came in at number two, uh, followed by the Daily Telegraph, and I think in fourth was the the Age in Melbourne. So, yeah, these are great numbers. So we should feel happier, no? Uh, We should. I mean, we have to remember that and include this is – the Emma figures are, for the most part, print, and there are different breakdowns, but they're print and – online and they're about how many people those publications have reached. Mm -hmm. So it might be one newspaper print edition that's reached several people. So it's not necessarily that many copies selling. Um, Mm -hmm. And it could also mean uh, people have read one article or they've gone to the homepage or they've been on it all day. Um, So there are... It's lumpy. 
It's a lumpy picture. It sure is. It sure is. And I think, I mean, the numbers are good. But as well, we have to remember that as we've been talking about, Facebook and Google still take a lot of the advertising dollars online. um, So those, those dollars aren't as valuable those ads, sorry, aren't as valuable on the news websites as as print. Um, so, I mean, sure, it's good news, but I think there's a lot of caveats to yes, it as well. Yes, I mean, that's that's the fundamental issue, isn't it? Um, it's, I mean, there's two interesting wriggles in here, I think, Andrew. One is it shows, for instance, the Sydney Morning Herald has a, still has a pretty soft paywall. Uh, you get quite a lot of yeah. content free. And Actually, you, that, that's oh, been a hardening. I know it's hardening. Oh. I, still, I can still read the Sydney Morning Herald and not pay for it if I want to. It should have been hardened around the time of the Sydney Olympics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes. In the past few months, a lot of readers are finding that they're getting they're, they're finding it harder because they're being blocked entry via uh, WA Today, via Brisbane Times, okay. and so on. So that that paywall is hardening. Okay, the paywall is hardening at the Sydney Morning Herald. So well, does that account for these figures? I think we're not in a point of comparison with these figures, are we? This is only the second second month we've had them, so we shouldn't be drinking champagne out of a shoe just yet. Andrew, no. Andrew, are you drinking champagne out of a shoe? No, I'm off the champagne and the shoes. Um, oh. We've never had more eyeballs, never had less money in this business. Mm. And somehow somebody has to work out how to extract the dough from the eyeballs because yes. it, it, there must be a way to do it. And, you know, pod, there is an amazing uh, appetite for stories to be told. You know, podcasts are going mad. We don't know how to monetize them very well. Everywhere you go, people talk to you about podcasts. And if you make a podcast, they talk to you about it, you know, in the street. Mm. This is, it just, people have got a great thirst for hearing stories and we can still tell stories. We just have to do that little tricky bit where people are paying their 23 cents to, to listen. Mm. Okay, well, I've got a final question for the panel for this uh, edition. Uh, the Canberra Times and other regional uh, in the form of Fairfax Stable is up for grabs. I think it costs about $25 million. So here, if I gave each of you $25 million, would you buy the Canberra Times or would you buy a news media uh, with this money? Andrew, let's start with you. If I gave you $25 million, bucks, would you buy the Canberra Times? No. Okay. Emily? <laughs> oh, not if I wanted to make any money out of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Could I do anything I wanted with the 25, or is the 25 just for the purchase of me? No, you have to buy... <laughs> I you couldn't, have, you I have couldn't to buy just the, travel or something. No, 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 no. You have to buy the Canberra Times with it. What would you... Would you buy it, and what would you do with it? Uh, no, if, if the business model was simply that money had to make money, no. I would hope that there will be a major... I think it needs more money. I think it needs a uh, philanthropist to come in. So, to save local media. Okay. So Jeff Bezos type person. Yes. Okay. I, I agree. And I think maybe there's an argument, Nick, that a hundred years ago plus there were very wealthy owners of newspapers in those days who were uh, content really to get a reasonably small return on their total investment, much the way that a, a cattle station owner might get a small return on investment. Mm. Two, three percent, maybe, and they were content with that. And it's only in the more, you know, last century when mm. corporations took over and shareholders and so on, where they were looking for, you know, fifteen, twenty percent profits, that these things started to fall apart. Mm. If if the philanthropist slash billionaires bought them and said, "I'm happy to own this, even if it just washes its own face." 
that wouldn't be a bad thing. Which appears to be what Bezos is doing, but he was able to buy the... Mm. Washington Post for the equivalent of scratching around in his sofa for a few coins. Mm. Well, there's much more of a tradition of it in the US than in Australia of philanthropy, particularly with news. Um, but, I mean, there's the Judith Nielsen Centre um, mm-hmm. announcement from last year that there are potential potential um, philanthropists in Australia. I'm not sure any of them are buying um, the Canberra Times, though. Well, we're not. Apparently, this panel isn't going to buy it either. So, <laughs> I know we better search harder and longer and deeper. Um, that is all we've got time for. I'm, I think we could probably talk for another three hours, but um, uh, these, this fine panel has to, sort of some work, work to, to do. work to do. That's right. That's, took the words out of my mouth. So, thank you, Andrew Rule from the Associate Editor of the Herald Sun in Melbourne. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Uh, thank you to Nick O'Malley, the senior repo- reporter for the City Morning Herald and The Age, part of the Nine Entertainment Group. <laughs> thanks, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and a special thanks to Emily Watkins. I don't know why it's special, but it's always nice to see you. Uh, the media reporter from Crikey. Thanks, Peter. And thank you all for uh, listening. If you um, uh, Make sure you subscribe to The Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast, talking about podcasts, so you can hear us talk about uh, journalists and journalism and media and politics uh, at, at your leisure. And we'll be back next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, and our, where our handle is Fourth Estate AU. My name is Peter Frey, and thank you so much for listening.